That was beautiful. Thank you. Thank you for all the choices of the songs and the spirit with which they were delivered and the music. I mean, it was it's just a great way to start. Um, you know, I'm kind of at that uh, age where um, I can either wear my glasses and not see my notes, but see you, or see my notes and not see you. So you may see me go back and forth at different times today, but uh, one of the girls asked me this morning, they were looking at my notes, they said, Dad, what font did you use for that? Um, you know, probably if, if I keep going a few more years, it'll be such that I have to have a font that every word is on a page by itself. Um, I'm very excited and grateful to be back with you today. Uh, I enjoyed being with you about three weeks ago, and uh, so I was looking forward to today uh, a lot. You know, when uh, I talked to Linda about being here, oh, it was it was a couple of months ago. She was planning way out, and we kind of set these dates. I had no idea then that today was going to be Palm Sunday. It really only dawned on me probably about uh, two weeks ago, but as you'll see um, when we go through the sermon, it didn't catch the Lord by surprise. He knew today was Palm Sunday, and he knew that, uh, that the sermon and, and the things that are a part of it would, uh, would, uh, would match up well with that. Um, if you will, go ahead and turn in your Bible to Matthew chapter 6, and uh, you might go ahead and uh, also put your, your finger over in uh, Matthew 21. We're going to be looking at both those passages and, and a number of others, but I won't ask you to to flip a whole bunch um, and as soon as you get there we'll go to the Lord in prayer let's pray Father we love you we thank you that you've given us the opportunity to come into your house today to worship and I feel like we have worshipped already. And I know that you've uh, been appreciative and, and also uh, have loved the adoration that you felt in the, the words that we sang and certainly with the spirit that it was delivered. Father, I just pray that you'd be with us during this service. Our hearts would be open and soft, fertile ground to your word. I pray that, uh, that you would work in a mighty way and that you would do Whatever you do, despite the, the inadequacies and the weakness of the one delivering the message, it's your Holy Spirit that convicts people's hearts. It's your Holy Spirit that changes lives. It's your Holy Spirit that points people to Jesus, and it's Jesus that brings us to you. So, Father, I just pray that today uh, your word would have power and uh, that we would uh, take it and apply it to our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You know, there's a kind of a, an old adage about people that um, climb the ladder of success. They spend their whole life climbing the ladder of success only to get to the end of their life and realize that the ladder was leaning against the wrong wall. And that's a very, very sad cautionary tale for people to understand. I don't want us to do that when it comes to our search for treasure we want to make sure that when we search for treasure we're searching for the right treasure that our focus 
is in the right place. <clears throat> Today I want to talk about life on the treasure map and what the treasure looks like. The first thing that you need to know is the treasure we're going to talk about outshines, outlasts, and outvalues all other treasures found on this or any other map. And that treasure is Jesus himself. That treasure is found in the person of Jesus himself. To find Jesus is to unlock all the other treasures that he has. But, I will say this, if you were to have no other treasure, no other reward, if there was no heaven, if there was no city of gold, if there was no anything, to have Jesus would be enough. To have Jesus would be sufficient. And we really, really need to grasp that because when we have Jesus, everything else just falls in place. Through Jesus, we have a relationship with the very creator of the universe and everything in it. Let's look at Matthew 6, 33. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. This one verse says it all. This one verse tells us exactly what we're looking for. When you're on the treasure map, you need to know what you're looking for. If you're searching for gold, it's going to look one way. You're going to have a pan and you're going to have a, a pickaxe and you might go to Alaska and sit down by a cold stream. If you're searching for the fountain of youth, it may look a different way. You may find yourself on the shores of Florida. I think that's where Ponce de Leon was looking for the fountain of youth in southern United States. If you're looking for oil, you know, you're probably going to go to either the Middle East or out west or north, or, you know, you might be like Jed Clampett and just, you know, stick a hole here in East Tennessee and hit oil. At any rate, when you're looking for whatever you value, it looks different. The same is true when you're looking for the treasure of Jesus. It's going to look vastly different than your other pursuits, and it should. The search for king, the kingdom of heaven and his righteousness are really looking for the same thing. But when we look at it today, we're going to look at them as two separate things. We want to focus on both of them. The first thing we want to look at is the kingdom of God. Let's, look at, let's kind of unpack the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is the rule of Jesus Christ. It's Jesus in his rightful place as the, the king of the, the universe, the king of everything. The kingdom of God is the realm where Jesus rules and to which those who trust him belong. So if you're a believer, you're already part of his kingdom, and he is your king. If you're seeking for Jesus' rule, you are seeking a specific sovereign. Okay? Remember that, a specific sovereign. The children of Israel had been looking for the Messiah for centuries. For centuries. Sometimes we, like them, fail to see what is right before us. 
I'm going to flip over to Matthew 21. We'll start in verse 1, if you will. Look there with me. And when they had approached Jerusalem and had come to Bethphage, and, and here's uh, every time I open the word to, to prepare for a lesson or a sermon or anything, I always learn little tidbits that I didn't know before. And those little tidbits, if, if you knew me well, you know one of the things, I'm, I'm big on trivia. My brothers will call me and say, hey, who was the lead singer of this band back in the 70s? And I'll say, oh, that was so-and-so. And did you know before that they played guitar in this band? Um, so that's, those little things kind of strike home with me. But the word Bethphage means house of unripe figs. House of unripe figs. And that ought to kind of give you a story right now. You know, if you're talking about the coming kingdom of Christ and then the, the, the town that's mentioned is the house of unripe figs, you kind of see, well, it's time, but it's not time. And so we'll go on. Come to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately, uh, and immediately you to me. And if anyone says something to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. Now this took place, that what was spoken through the prophet might be fulfilled, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. And they went and did just as Jesus had directed them, and brought the donkey and the colt, and laid on them their garments on which he sat. So Jesus instructs the disciples to go into town and ask, um, they would run into a guy and just ask him for their, his, their donkey, his donkey, and, and it's colt. And, and Jesus said, don't worry about it. They may ask you what you need it for, and you can just say, my master has need of it, and, they're gonna, and they did. Now, here, here's a question for you. Why both? Why did Jesus need both a donkey and her, her youngster? Why, why would that be necessary? First of all, we need to know that kings in that day when they entered into a town, they would ride a stallion, particularly the Roman uh, authorities. They would come in on the biggest white horse they could find because it was a symbol of power. You know, they come riding in, and this horse is adorned with all kinds of glitter and gold and, you know, uh, impressive things, and it's snorting, and it's pawing at the ground, and it's doing all that thing. And, and you know, it gave you a, a knowledge of power. Jesus, though, chose to come in on a donkey and with a colt. Why? If you look at, and you don't turn here, I'll just read it. Zechariah 9, 9, it says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Why a donkey? Jesus was establishing himself as a humble king, as a king of humility, uh, not a king of, you know, lording it over you, 
but a king that was part of, of the people. He was also doing it because Zechariah, centuries before, had said, unlike all the other kings you see, when you see this dude riding into town on a donkey, that's your king. But if that's not enough for you, let's throw in a little bit extra. We want to make sure that some, you know, some fake, some imposter doesn't show up. So here's, here's the deal. Not only will he be riding on a donkey, but he will be riding on the donkey with the colt of that donkey with them. You know, there's all kinds of things you can see there where the prophet is telling him, heads up, guys, when you see a guy on a donkey with the donkey's colt making a triumphal entry into Jerusalem, you'll know this is Messiah. Continuing. And most of the multitude spread their garments in the road, and others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them in the road. And the multitudes going before him and those who followed after were crying out, saying, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. A little pause here. Hosanna means, O Lord, save. That is the literal translation. In that day and age, though, Hosanna would have had the same meaning as hail to the king. So these people were accepting the, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven was at hand, which Jesus had told them. And he, he has come into Jerusalem, and I believe he's offering the kingdom right there. He is offering his kingdom to come in and be established. Let's continue. When he had entered Jerusalem, all the city was stirred, saying, Who is this? And the multitudes were saying, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. If you're looking for a Messiah, if you're looking for a king, you need to be looking for the one that's described on the treasure map. You can't look at a guy riding into town on a donkey with its colt and say, Wow. That guy checks the prophecy box, but that's just not impressive enough for me. You can't look at a guy who heals sick people, who raises people from the dead, who feeds thousands from a small basket, who speaks of love and forgiveness and say, yeah, he checks all the things that the Bible says, but I'm still not sold. You can't look at the things that Jesus is and the description of what we know he was and he is. You can't look at what he's done in our lives and say, yeah, but, you know, he's just not very popular. Or, yeah, but the things he would, he would have people to do in their lives give up. I, I just don't see it. I just don't get it. If you're searching on this treasure map, you have to seek the sovereign that the treasure map tells you to seek. If you choose not to, it's unpardonable. If you choose not to accept that king, it's unpardonable. Jesus is a very specific sovereign. There's none like him. There will never be any like him. He is one among one. 
He is the only one, and he is all that we need. He tells us very specifically in John chapter 14, verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Very specific. You can't look at the proof offered in the treasure map of Jesus' kingship and specific sovereignty, and then, because you don't like it, because you don't like the changes it would require, you, you can't think about things that you think uh, you can have the treasure without making sacrifices that are necessary in the search. You have to look at the changes that you need in your life that will be required when you accept that king. You must be willing to abandon your will, to serve your own desires, to forsake your selfish pursuits, and whatever those things are about. And through faith say, I believe you are king, Jesus. Please forgive me for the fact that I haven't accepted you before now. Please forgive me because I am not even worthy to be in your kingdom. And then when, when you do that, the second part is you have to be willing to make the sacrifices in your life that, that bear witness to the fact that this king is sovereign. You have to be willing to sacrifice for the sovereign's reign. You know, when people look for treasure, they will sacrifice all they have to get that treasure. Let me read you a little uh, account here. Beginning in 1969, American treasure hunter Mel Fisher started looking for the Atocha's treasure. The mission was lengthy and dangerous. In 1970, Fisher had recovered portions of the wrecked cargo of the sister ship Santa Margarita. He also proposed the idea to several other potential helpers who were discouraged by the fact that the dangerous professional diving job would be paid at minimum wage unless the ship could be found. A few finds along the way convinced him that he was getting closer to the great discovery. Three members of his crew, a diver, his son, and his wife, lost their lives during this quest when their boat capsized. The treasure hunter was shaken, but he did not lose hope, and he knew that the lost teammates would have wanted the expedition to continue. He always kept saying, today's the day. In addition to the previous difficulties, the treasure hunter had to fight a court battle against the state of Florida who wanted ownership or at least a percentage of the treasure. The U.S. Supreme Court ruled in his favor. On July the 20th, 1985, 16 years after he began, Mel Fisher discovered the wreck of Nuestra Senora de Atocha off the Florida Keys. The cargo's value is estimated to be worth $400 million. The treasure includes 24 tons of silver bullion, ingots, and coins, 125 gold bars and discs, and 1,200 pounds of silverware, as well as priceless uh, emeralds from a mine in Colombia. Other items with great historical importance were recovered, like 20 bronze cannons, navigational instruments, and Native American artifacts. 
This is why it was declared the most valuable shipwreck in the world by the Guinness Book in 2014. This man was willing to sacrifice literally, literally everything he had in search of this treasure. The Bible tells us in Matthew that the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field which a man found and hid. And from joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. And again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls. And upon finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. The kingdom of heaven requires us to make whatever sacrifice we need to make to find it. Whatever it is, it's that important. It's that valuable. In both of these examples, the treasure seekers were willing to sacrifice what? Everything. All they had. What are you sacrificing for your search? Jesus tells us that there is, not, there is nothing that we have that is not worth sacrificing for the treasure that awaits in his kingdom. So many folks will miss heaven, will miss his kingdom, will miss him because they view the cost of finding him, the cost of seeking him, too high. They have to give up important things in their lives, or so they think, because the deceiver who we talked about last time convinces them that there's nothing more important than those things. The Jewish people missed Jesus at that time because of their religion. That's right, their religion. And there's people today that will miss Jesus because of their religion. Why? They think they've got good dogma. What they believe is strong. You know, if I come to church enough, if I, you know, if I do enough good deeds, if I'm a good person, if I read my Bible enough, whatever it might be, they pick all kinds of things. And if I do all those things, then I'll be okay. And the Bible tells us that's not, that's not at all the truth. The Bible says, for the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life. And few are those who find it. We need to be willing to sacrifice everything to find our way through Jesus, through that narrow gate. Whatever's in your life that's keeping you from searching, it needs to be sacrificed. And then, once you've sought the sovereign, you've sacrificed for the sovereign, you need to submit to the sovereign. And once you've identified him, you need to be able to serve him. If you look up the word sovereign in Google, you look up the synonyms, the words that mean the same, this is a list of those words. And, and this is the first time I'd ever looked that up, and, and they're, they're, they're quite impressive. Supreme, absolute, unlimited, unrestricted, unrestrained, unconditional, unbounded, infinite, ultimate, paramount. Big words, important words. That is what sovereign means. And there's a lot of kings that will say they are the sovereign. There's a lot of nations that say, well, we're a sovereign nation. None of them fall within those categories. They're all bounded. They're all limited, except for Jesus. Jesus 
fits all of those things which makes him sovereign. Think about those words in light of a creator that created everything by his mere words. And now you're talking about true sovereignty. And with that sovereignty, you need to understand that is, that is someone that is worth serving. If they tell you to do something, you know what? It's in your own best interest because they know what your best interest is. Some people think of God as being some sort of, you know, cosmic grandpa. It's just sitting up in heaven, you know, just kind of waiting for the grandkids to come around and, you know, everything's just hunky-dory. That's a bad depiction. God is a God that loves us tremendously. But I'm going to say a word that probably a lot of people don't say, and it's a word we use in our society very loosely today, and I'm going to use it to describe God. Our God is intolerant. Our God is intolerant. You say, well, that's, that's awful harsh. No, it's not. He made the rules. He set up the universe. And he knows that if he is tolerant, then there becomes many ways to get to him and many ways to do what you want to do. And that's not what he's about. He understands that he's made great sacrifices for you to bring you to him. And that's just not, tolerance is just not a part of it. He says in Matthew chapter 6, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other. Does that sound like tolerance? Does that sound like there's a lot of gray area here? No. What he's saying is, you're either going to love him or you're going to hate him. There's no in-between. There's no, oh, I'm just not feeling it today. It's a polar thing. You're one or the other. Too often, we want the privileges of knowing him without the responsibilities that go along with them. If we want the treasure of the kingdom of God, we have to seek the sovereign, sacrifice for the sovereign's reign, and serve the sovereign. When we have sought and submitted, then we are under his rule. And then the second part of that comes along. Seek first the kingdom of God and then what? His righteousness. So if you have the kingdom, if you found the kingdom, the next thing you have to seek is his righteousness. Now, notice it doesn't say, seek first the kingdom of God and then be righteous. It doesn't say that. It says, seek his kingdom and then his righteousness. So let's define righteousness. And we'll look in Mark, and I'll read from Mark chapter 10. And as he, we're talking about Jesus, as he was setting out on a journey, a man ran up to him and knelt before him and began asking him, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And I want you to notice, it's very important what Jesus says here. And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Jesus himself, the very Son of God, God incarnate here on earth, when, 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 when kind of challenged on his goodness, when complimented on his goodness, 
Instead, what did he do? He deflected and said, if you want to talk about good, let's talk about the Heavenly Father. If you want to talk about the litmus test of good, let's look at God the Father. If you want to look at the model of righteousness, the model of holiness, the model of goodness, we've got to go to God the Father. Jesus himself did that. Isaiah says, all of our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. So here, here's the thing. If we try to manufacture righteousness in our own life, it doesn't matter how good we get compared to God's righteousness, it's still filthy. You know, we've been looking at, uh, we're getting ready to build a house, so we've been looking at cabinets. And we got these little cabinet samples, and it's amazing when you hold these cabinet samples up against different things, they look different. So if you take a cream-colored cabinet door and you hold it up against a stark white wall, it looks yellow. It looks dated. It looks old. It looks dingy, whatever. When we think about our righteousness and we hold it up against the perfect holiness of God, it's not yellow, it's brown and black against pure white. We will never, ever be able to attain his righteousness of our own accord. But you know what? With Jesus in our life, when we have submitted to that sovereign, we can strive toward having that holiness, that righteousness. And we are called to do that. We need to try to do that through the power of Christ. Too often, what we say is, I'm better than that person at least. I'm at least as good as this person. Have you ever noticed when you're comparing your righteousness with people, when I'm comparing my righteousness with people, I never say, <clears throat> well, you know, I'm better than Billy Graham. That's not what I say. No, what I say is, well, at least I'm better than Charles Manson. You know, I, you go to the bottom of the barrel. You go as low as you can go, and that's where you set your litmus test. And God's saying, you know what? The litmus test is me. That is the goal. That is where you need to try to attain. And you need to do it through your search. The treasure map for our whole life. If we seek his righteousness, we need to be in the treasure map because the treasure map is going to tell us those things that will allow us to approach his righteousness. Deuteronomy says, and it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to observe all this commandment before the Lord our God, just as he commanded us. You know what? Don't throw the commandments out. The Ten Commandments are still important in our life. Jesus said, I didn't come to abolish the law, but that the law through me might be fulfilled. We need to look at those Ten Commandments and we need to evaluate them. Am I, am I putting other gods before me? Am I creating graven images? Am I uh, honoring my father and mother? Am I bearing w uh, false witness? Am I committing adultery? Am I committing murder? You know the Ten Commandments? We need to look at those, and we need to make sure that not only, particularly not only to the letter, 
but to the spirit of them that were striving to live in compliance with them. In the New Testament, we are told in 1 Peter to gird your minds for actions, keep sober in spirit, fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lust which were yours in ignorance. But, like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. Because it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. And if you address as Father the one who impartially judges according to each man's work, conduct yourself in fear during the time of your stay upon earth, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your feudal way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. We're told in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments, the whole law and prophets hang. We must be careful that we seek these things in the proper order. If we seek righteousness before we seek uh, the uh, kingdom of God, then what we're trying to do is create a works-based theology that gets us where we think. We think it'll get us where we need to go. But if we, we establish and find the kingdom and then don't follow it up with the search for righteousness, then what we have is faith without works. Neither are good. This is a package deal. You've got to go for both. You've got to seek his kingdom and you've got to seek his righteousness. So those things, in my opinion, his kingdom, his righteousness, are the very treasure chest in which everything else is held. We're told in Matthew 33, 6.33, that if you seek those things, all these things will be added. And if you go back and look at what things, what you find is Jesus is telling them, hey, listen, don't be anxious for what you're going to eat or drink or wear. Don't be anxious for how things are going to go in your life. I know you have those needs, and I will meet those needs. I will meet your need every time if you sought me and my righteousness first. So he meets our basic needs, but that's not all. If you go on in the treasure map, you find that there's more to that than that. The Bible tells us that one of the things he does is he adopts us. What a tremendous, tremendous thing to be adopted. To be taken in by somebody that says, you know what? I want you, I want you individually to be a part of my family. You're fatherless, you're motherless in a spiritual sense. 
I want to make you a part of my family. You know what? I want to make you a co-heir with Jesus himself. What a, what a blessing. It says in Ephesians, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will. He adopts us. Why? Because that's just how he is. He is so loving. He is so kind. He is so giving that eternity passed. He said, you know what? I, I love these. Could he, could he survive without us? Absolutely. Could God, is God self-sufficient so he can make us, if, if none of us do anything? Absolutely. But that's not, that's not the way he rolls. He wants us there. He wants us to be a part of the family. And he wants us to, to accept him in that role. And when we do, he says, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to adopt you. It also says he's going to give us an inheritance. This is out of Colossians. Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. There you get, you get it, the sovereign Savior. If you're, you're following that sovereign, submitting to that sovereign, sacrificing for that sovereign, guess what? You get an inheritance. There's a new heaven and a new earth. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth passed away and there's no longer any sea. If you read further about that, you find that there's no, uh, there's no uh, uh, need for a sun or moon because the glory of the Lord makes it shine all the time. They leave the gates open. They've got gates that are made out of single pearls. Single pearls make the gates. And guess what? They leave them open. You know why? Because there's nothing going to come in and bother anything. God's already taken care of all that, those things. So we have no fears. The removal of the curse that was placed on the earth at the fall. The Bible says in Revelation, and there shall no longer be any curse, and the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his bondservants shall serve him. Those are just a few of the treasures that you find in the treasure chest once you have sought and found the kingdom of God and his righteousness. I want to ask you a question. Have you sought for and found that kingdom and that righteousness? If you haven't, will you? Be the most important thing you ever do. Have you allowed Jesus himself to be the king of your life? The one that makes the decisions. The one that you consult when you want to do something. Good, bad, indifferent, whatever it is. Have you made Jesus, have you allowed him to be on that throne that he so deserves? Have you, in response to finding a pearl of great value, made the decision to let everything else go and pursue his righteousness? Not self-righteousness but purity and holy living that is informed by the constant study of the treasure map. Folks, we have just scratched the surface. This was probably one of the hardest sermons I've ever tried to put together. Why? Because every time you scratched and got a little bit deeper, this sermon could have gone on for, for days. God is that good. 
There is so much in here about his sovereignty, so much in here about his blessing, so much in here about what he wants for each of us. We've only scratched the surface. But I thank you that you've been attentive and allow me to scratch that surface with you. Well, good morning. It's good to be with you again this morning. Happy spring to you. I don't know about you, but I'm excited to have a little bit longer days, more daylight, brighter days, and warmer weather. Uh, it, it always brightens my spirit, makes me feel better, so, so it's good. Let's start with a word of prayer as we begin this morning. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning so thankful so privileged to be called yours. Father, we, we gather this morning to worship you. We don't gather for ourselves. We don't gather to make someone else known. We gather to worship the name of Jesus. We gather to worship you, our Heavenly Father. And we rejoice in your Holy Spirit. Father, we come this morning celebrating the truth and the life that we have. And Father, we gather this morning to make great Your name. So Father, we pray that You would bless our time this morning. That You would allow us to get to know You just a little better. Father, that You would grant us the privilege of knowing You. Father, we pray this morning that, that I would yield. That this wouldn't be a focus on me, Father, but but it would be a focus on and a time to focus on Your Word and Your Spirit and Your truth. And Father, we pray that Your Word would speak to us, that it would shape and that it would mold us, Father, that we would let down our guard this morning to be shaped and molded by You. So Father, we gather now, after singing and praising Your name through song, we want to praise Your name through studying Your Word. And Father, we want to grow to become a little more like You today. So Father, we pray You'll bless. You'll bless our time in Your Word this morning. We pray that You would speak to us. Father, that, that we would let down our guard and that we would be open-minded to what You might have to say to us today. Father, we thank You for Your love. We thank You for Your grace. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. Well, several years ago, I was in college at uh, the University of Tennessee. And uh, while there, you know, you take a ton of classes. And I can remember being so aggravated because, you know, you come in, you have to take all the general ed courses before you can move on to the stuff that you really want to focus on in your major. And I can remember in several of those courses, uh, we would be assigned group projects. And I can remember thinking the very first time we had a group project, okay, maybe this, maybe this will be okay. Maybe it'll go all right. And then I quickly learned that you'd always have a few in the group project who did an excellent job. But there was always at least one that would hardly ever show up or hardly ever carry their load or, or continue on with what they were supposed to do or, or, or meet their assignment. And man, let me tell you, every time after that, 
Every time we were assigned a group project, I would look at it and go, oh, no, not another group project. They drive me nuts, you know, because I was the one that I would try to be there for every meeting. I would try to participate, do my job, because my grade is depending on it. Well, I can remember in this one class I had, it was a sociology class. We had this big group project that we had to do. And as soon as I saw it in the first day of class, it was on the syllabus. And I thought, oh, man, this is going to be miserable. But I can remember my professor standing up there, and he, and he was, made this announcement that he said, okay, you have a group project. But he said, let me tell you, I've learned something over the years. I've learned something. I know that some of you, you excel in group projects. But I know there's a few of you who won't do hardly anything. And he said, so that's why in this group project or in my class, I'm going to allow you to grade each other within the group project. And I thought, yes, you know, <laughs> this is how it should be. So, uh, you know, hey, I, I went to UT. Now, I love UT. I, you know, while I was there and paying tuition, I didn't really, I wasn't excited about that part, but I, but I love it. But I can tell you what, the, was anybody in here a college athlete? No? Oh, okay. Okay, well, nothing against college athletes. I love them. But, man, we had a football player in that class, and he was in my group. And I tell you what, that guy hardly ever showed up to anything. Now, I'm not, I'm not faulting the football players because I think he was a pretty good guy. But I can remember as that group project continued, he stopped coming to the meetings. You know, we'd have to meet after class, go over stuff and figure out, because we had to put this big paper, this big presentation together. And then at the end of the semester, we had to stand before the class and present our findings, you know, present the results, present all the, all the information. And man, this guy would hardly ever show up. So, you know, it's not just me. There's a few, a few others in the group that are like, as this goes on, where is he? Where, what, what, you know, he was supposed to have this done by this point. He was supposed to have that done by this point. You know, what, what happened to him? Where did he go? And, uh, you know, we, we even checked with the professor. Is he still a part of the class? <laughs> you know, like, where did he go? And uh, anyway, as the semester went on, it became more and more and more frustrating because the rest of us were committed. We were there. We were doing our fair share. We were pulling our load, and we were doing our part, right? I can remember on the last, or, or the, it wasn't the last day of the class, but it was the class when, when it was our turn to get up and give the presentation. And guess who shows up to class? <laughs> this guy. He shows up to class and he goes, hey man, wh wh what's my part? What do I need to say when I get up there? And we're like, what? What do you need to say? Where have you been? Well, you can kind of fill in the blanks on what happened. We all got to grade each other as a part of that project. You know what I'm saying? And, we, and it, wasn't, it wasn't, you know, we didn't go, you made an A, you made a, you made a B. We got to fill out on a piece of paper and turn it in to the professor so he could see. And I know for a fact that everybody gave him an F because he was never there. Have you ever been a part of a project? Now, now I just learned today that you had a work day yesterday, so don't throw, throw anybody under the bus right now. <laughs> but, but have you ever been a part of a project or a work assignment or some type of something where you felt like, man, I'm here, I'm committed, I'm pouring it all in. But where's everybody else? Or where's so-and-so? Or man, what, what happened? Where, what, why, did, why aren't they so committed? Why aren't they as devoted as I am? Have you ever experienced anything like that? I've experienced that several times. Today, today we're going to talk about the extravagance 
of devotion. You know, I, I don't know about you, but man, it is so easy over the course of a Christian life that, man, you can be fired up and excited and, and all in. I'm talking all in at times. But then there's other times when it's like, Lord, I don't know about that. I don't think I can, I don't think I can be all in on this. Lord, I, I'm really struggling with this. And you know what? Today, we're going to see in this passage the extravagance of devotion and how when we, when we are devoted, when we are committed, it's way more than just a group project. It's way more than just a work project. It's way more than just a work assignment. It's a heart issue. It's an issue with our heart. And before a holy God, He's calling us to give it all to Him. He wants our hearts. He wants our minds. He wants our soul. He wants it all. And today we're going to see in the passage that we're going to look at the extravagance of devotion. And it's going to be really interesting because today the way the writer writes this, he's going to show us, and he's going to show us some contrasting elements and he's going to show us what, the, what, what ultimate and complete devotion looks like. Today we're going to read in, in Mark chapter 14. So if you would, turn with me there. We're going to be in Mark chapter 14, and we're going to look at verses 1 through 11. So today in this passage, I, I, don't, know, I don't know who's speaking next Sunday. I don't know what you all are doing, but Easter's coming up, right? And, uh, and in Mark chapter 14, this is uh, the beginning of the passion narrative, and, and, and uh, things are about to really, really get going here for Jesus. We, if, you, if you had had the time to read through Mark up to this point, you would have seen Jesus' ministry and, and the way that He's worked with His disciples and the way, that he's, the way that He's contrasted everything that everyone thought the coming Messiah would be, right? As a matter of fact, so many people are going, that cannot be the coming King. No way. I don't believe it. I don't buy it. But if you followed Jesus closely, you would have seen things that you could never see. <laughs> you could never experience even today. Some of the miracles, some of the workings, some of the things that, that Jesus did, the way He talked and acted. You would never see anyone that could do that today. So, so we, see, uh, we come to the point in, in, this, uh, in this book, in the Gospel of Mark, where, where Jesus is, is about to enter uh, Jerusalem and, and they're... they're it's almost to the uh, Passover feast. It's a couple of days before the Passover celebration. And uh, as we come to uh, Mark chapter 14, let's start reading in, in Mark chapter 14, verse 1. He says, And it was, now, it was now two days before the Passover and the feast of unleavened bread. Now this is very interesting right now because we have to set uh, the setting of what's going on. Jerusalem is a very busy place right now, right? Jerusalem, this, this town and this area is filled with people. I mean, they've come from all over. Pilgrims and migrants have come from, from all over to celebrate the Passover feast. So this is the same festival that, do you remember the story when Jesus was a little boy? Uh, Joseph and Mary, they forget him in the temple. And when they find him, you know, he's, he's arguing with the, with the priests and everybody. You know, it, th that's what's going on now. So that gives you a picture of some of the chaos that's happening. A parent could walk off and forget their child in the crowd. Think of it like this. I mean, speaking of college sports, think of it like this. 
in Jerusalem, you can read all kinds of different studies and historical studies that were done, and there's, there's up to an extra 120 to 350,000 people in Jerusalem during this time. Now, that's a lot of people. Think about it. Now, all these people, they don't just come walking in, or they don't come pulling in their BMW and pulling in park, right? All these people, they're riding in on horses. They got donkeys. They have animals to make sacrifices. They have, I mean, there's a lot going on. Not only that, but there's, there's people that are selling things and people that are, are, are all these tents and all these, I mean, think of it like this. Have you ever gone to a game day for a UT football game in the fall? There's a lot going on down there. There's a whole lot going on. I mean, there's people that have traveled from all over. They're staying in hotels. They're eating in restaurants. There's, there's people all over. Now, imagine them all on a horse <laughs> or pulling a donkey or bringing a goat or bringing a lamb or something to sacrifice. you got 110,000 people that are all coming with animals, walking through the streets. Imagine the smells. Imagine the, 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 the ambiance of the scene. You know what I'm saying? Now, there could be up to 350,000 extra people in Jerusalem. There's a lot going on. So you have all of that, all of that commotion, all the noise, all the, the energy from the crowds. And it says it was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. I mean, Mark just lays it right out there. There's no, there's no uh, candy coating anything, man. These guys were looking for a way. And all of the commotion, and all the crowds, and all the smells, and all the stuff going on, these guys are looking for a way to arrest him. How can we find him in this crowd and get him? Because with all the stuff going on, we could make up something, and they're going to believe it, that he caused some kind of commotion, that he caused some kind of problem, that he caused something to go wrong. As a matter of fact, as I was studying about this passage, you know, I was reading that, that uh, a lot of the, the Roman guards, even, even, uh, even the guards that would live along the coast of the Mediterranean, they would, they would travel to Jerusalem during this time to make sure that there was enough power and authority there in case something went wrong because, man, they would fix it quick. Because if things got out of hand and you had 350,000 people causing a riot, you had a major problem on your hands. So the chief priests and the scribes, they knew if they could just accuse him of something, if they could just find some little thing to get him, then they could, and this was the time to do it. So that's why they're, they're talking, they're scheming. They're seeking how to arrest him. Just how can we get him in our hands? And, they want, and not, not just to arrest him, but they wanted to do it in secret, and they wanted to do it to kill him. In verse 2 it says, For they said, Not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. We don't want to do it in a big crazy fashion. We don't want to make a big celebration out of it. We just want to get him in secret. So that, so that we can kill him. You know, the interesting thing is that as we read, we're going to read chapter 14 verses 1 through 11 today. And the way that Mark writes his gospel he writes this almost as, a, as kind of like a sandwich uh, passage, if you will. And what I mean by that is you have the top bun, you have the meat, and then you have the bottom bun. It's a sandwich. And, uh, and, and verses 14, 1 through 2, that's the top bun. And then for, uh, verses 3 
through 9, that's the meat. That's the middle part. And then verses 10 through 11, that's the bottom bun. So he writes this as kind of a sandwich passage. And what he's doing here is he's giving you three different responses to who Jesus is. And he puts them kind of in a sandwich uh, 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 package here. So the first one we have in verses one, verses 1 and 2, we have the scribes and the priests. And we see their response. If someone were to walk in town and with a big microphone in front of all of these people and say, Hey, Jerusalem, who do you say Jesus is? All the scribes and the priests would what? They would deny him. They would say, this man is crazy. This man is out to undo everything that we stand for. This man is out to cause turmoil. This man has messed up everything that we stand for. As a matter of fact, he just threatened to destroy our temple. As a matter of fact, he, he wants to do away with all the sacrifices. As a matter of fact, he's told us that, that we don't really mean anything anymore. That the message that he's bringing, well, it goes to the Gentiles too. Are you kidding me? This man is crazy. We want nothing to do with him. As a matter of fact, if you'll turn him over to us, we'll do away with him. That's exactly what we see in Mark 14, 1 through 2. A couple of days before this Passover feast, they're working in secret to find a way to arrest Jesus in secret to kill him, to do away with him. What is their response to Jesus? They've denied him. They see him as a nuisance to their plans. Let me ask you something. Has there ever been a time when you have denied Christ the authority that he should have? Has there ever been a time for you when you have said, Jesus, not today. I'm not doing it today. No, thank you, Jesus. I can't. Not today. You know what, Jesus? I, ugh, you're really getting on my nerves today because I really wanted to do that. <laughs> Jesus, you're really being a nuisance today. Jesus, I don't want to submit to what you want today. You know, this is exactly what we see from the chief priests and the scribes. Now, there's a lot more going on here than just that. Because he, Jesus, is disrupting their entire system, right? And they know it. And they want to prevent it at all costs. But that's the response we see. Are you like these religious leaders? Unwilling, unwilling to submit and to follow Jesus? That's a question between you and him. But I want you to ask yourself that. Am I like that? You know, we, we become experts at justifying a lot of what we do. You know it? I mean, we become professional experts at God. You know, I'm going to do this, but I'm not really doing it for you. I'm really doing it for my own pride. You know it? Because it makes me feel good. And I like feeling good. And I'm going to do whatever I want to make myself feel good. So God, I, yeah, I, I may even use your name. I may even use your name to build something great, to do something great, to give to something great. But really, I'm doing it for my own pride. These religious re leaders, they're showing, us, they're showing us what it looks like to completely deny and to justify their denial. 
Now look what Mark does. Look what Mark does. He takes us from that, from that type of thinking and he introduces us to another. In verse 3 we pick it up and we see, And while he was at Bethany, in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table... You know, in this, in this uh, setting, in this day and age, you have all the commotion, the animals, the people, and everything going on outside. And while he's in Bethany at Simon the leper, he's reclining at table. And what that means is they would eat at a small table, but they would eat on the floor. They would lay, they would kind of recline on the floor, laying there, propped up. And they're all sitting there with the disciple. He's sitting there with, his, with the disciples and Simon and, and, and the people of his household, and he's eating at this table. And it says a woman, a woman came in. This lady doesn't even have a name. A woman came in with an alabaster flask of ointment, of pure nard. Very costly. Very costly. Now, we have to stop there because this is really interesting. Mark is writing and he shows us the chief, pre, chief, chief priests and the scribes, the religious leaders, and he shows that they've completely denied Christ. They want nothing to do with him. As, as a matter of fact, they want to do away with him. And then he changes the whole tune and he says, but while Jesus, while Jesus is eating, this woman walks in. She doesn't even have a name. This woman walks in. Maybe, maybe she had followed the, the disciples around. Maybe she knew Simon. I, we don't know. But she walks in, and she has an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard. It's, it's really expensive. I mean, as a matter of fact, most scholars would say that this might be like a family heirloom of some sort or something that, that she had been handed down, and it was kind of the, the last resort of income, if you will. If all else went wrong, man, she could go and she could sell this thing and she could make a lot of money, as a matter of fact. Look, it says it was very costly. It cost a lot of money. It was worth a lot of money. And what does she do? What does she do with it? It says, and she broke, she broke the flask and poured it over his head. Now, you think about something that you have that's worth a lot of money. This lady has, has this ointment. It's in an alabaster flask. And what does she do with it? Does she gently twist the cap off? Here, just a few drops, Jesus, because <laughs> it's worth a lot of money. I don't want to give it all away. Here, here, let me easily get the cork out of the top. Just a few drops, Jesus. No way, we're not going to waste all of it. Yeah, man, it's worth a ton. You kidding me? My family would be mad at me if I just gave it all away. What does she do? She breaks it and pours the whole thing over his head. The whole thing. Now think about it. Think about it. In our day and age of equality, this woman had nothing. She was worth nothing. She couldn't just go get a job. She may have had no husband. She was dependent on that. That was her everything or could have been her everything. It wasn't like, well, she'll be all right. She'll go down to the church and they'll hand her some food and they'll hand her some clothes. And they'll, No, you kidding me? This woman gives everything that she has. She broke the jar. She poured the whole thing over his head. 
As a matter of fact, I mean, you think about it. He's laying on the floor. He's laying on the floor, probably propped up on one arm or reclining on a pillow. And she walks in and pours the whole thing over his head. All of the disciples are sitting around this table and all the people are sitting and they're, and they're all going, Whoa, what, what did you do? Are you kidding me? You just wasted all of that. Look, look in, the, in, 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 verse, in verse 4 it says, There were some who said to themselves indignantly, Why was the ointment wasted like that? Look at that. That thing was worth a ton. Why was it wasted like that? Look, in verse 5 it says, For this ointment, it could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. Now you think about that. A denarii or a denarii, it, it was worth one day's worth of wages for a workman. Okay, so you think about that in today's day and age. Take minimum wage. One day's worth of minimum wage. That's over 300 days worth. That's a year's. That's a year's worth of income for someone today. Now you think about that. Now I don't know. You can come up with whatever figure you want, but you think of a, you think of some ointment, some bottle of ointment that was worth twenty to forty thousand dollars. Put it into perspective. Would you have walked in and broke it and poured it over his head? I'm telling you right now, it'd have been hard for me to do it. It'd have been hard for me to dump the whole bottle on Jesus' head. But that's exactly what she did. She broke it. She poured the whole thing, twenty to $40,000 worth. She poured it over his head. Now, when I was in seminary at Dallas Theological Seminary, I had the chance to, well, I didn't have the chance, I had to. I had to work a part-time job, and I worked in, in a, it was a club, it was called the Dallas Petroleum Club. I'm not making this up. Dallas Petroleum Club, and this was for oil executives and natural gas executives to come and entertain guests. And uh, we were on the 41st floor of a big building downtown, and in this building, there, or in the center of, of the club in this building, they had this wine cellar. Y'all, I'm not making this up. In this wine cellar, these oil companies and executives could have bottles of wine brought in that they would use to entertain guests when they wanted to. There were bottles of wine in there that were worth $120,000 a bottle. <laughs> I had a key to that room, but I never went in there. Let me tell you something, because I didn't want to break anything. They had bottles of wine that were $120,000 a piece. Can you imagine opening a bottle of wine that was worth $120,000? I couldn't. I'd be afraid to drink it. I'd be afraid to do anything with it. I'd be afraid to touch it. But that, that's what they were doing. So it is possible. I mean, you just think about that. Think about how expensive that is. And just, it blows my mind. I, I wouldn't even know what to do with it. This woman, this woman, this was everything that she had. And she broke the jar and, and she poured it on his head and said, it's, uh, that's it. And she did it for a reason. If we keep looking, you know, we, we have all the people that are like, Dude, this, is, this woman's crazy. What, what did she just do? She wasted the entire thing. Well, it says in verse 6, but Jesus said, leave her alone. Jesus speaks up after all the clamoring and going on. He says, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing. She has done the most beautiful thing you could do. 
In verse 7 it says, For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them, but you will not always have me. Right now, Jesus, is no, He knows what's coming. And He's almost prophesying that, look guys, in a couple days, although you're, you're my disciples and none of you get what's going on, in a couple of days I'll be gone. And this woman, who we don't even know who she is, <laughs> we don't even know her name, she walks in and she devotes it all to me. She has done a beautiful thing. For you'll always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. That's really important. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for the burial. Verse 9 says, And truly I say to you, Wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. And you know what? Over 2,000 years later, we are reading it right here today. We are. This woman walks in and devotes it all. Now you just think, you have the religious leaders who have denied Jesus. No, as a matter of fact, we're trying to get him because we want to kill him. And then we see this humble lady. <laughs> we don't even know her name, but we know her story. She walks in and she devotes it all in the most extravagant way that she could. You know why? Because she gave what she could. She gave it. She gave it all. There is no question where her heart is when she did that. You know it? Let me ask you something. Is there a question? of where your heart is today. Think about it. And Jesus says, look, what she has done, it'll be told, it'll be told, it'll be remembered. Whenever the gospel is preached, it will be remembered. Well, we gotta, we got to finish up here. Verses 10 through 11, we see another response. And look how Mark does this in his gospel. It says, then Judas... Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, well, he went to the chief priest in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad, and they promised to give him money. <laughs> they promised to give him money. This woman just devotes it all. I mean, gave a ton, gave a ton of money to, or, or sacrificed it all for Jesus to be anointed. And then you have Judas who goes, and says, hey, hey guys, I know right where Jesus is. I know right what he's doing. And if you'll give me a little bit of money, I'll hand him over to you. And the chief priests were so excited that when they heard it, they were glad and they promised to give him money and he sought an opportunity to betray him. You see what Mark's doing here? He's given three different contrasting responses to who Jesus is. You can be like the religious leaders and say, Jesus, you're messing up my plan. And you're getting on my nerves and I don't want anything to do with you. As a matter of fact, I wish somebody would get you and take you away. Or you can be like this woman who shows the most extra extravagant devotion that you could ever see. And says, Jesus, all I have, all my things, all my money, all my time, all my energy, all my talents, my mind, and my heart, they're all yours. 
Or, or you can be like Judas. And you can say, Jesus, I've tasted just a little bit, and I think i got enough. And you know what? I've decided, I've decided to betray you as soon as I can. I don't want anything to do with you. You know, some, some people, some scholars, you know, they've written in, in different commentaries that, you know, it's interesting here that Mark doesn't really give a reason for why Judas betrays Jesus. You can look in, in Luke and in John and, and, you know, they say, well, the devil entered, entered Judas or, or he was greedy or he was coveting or whatever. But Mark doesn't give a reason. And you know what Mark is doing? I think what he's doing here is he's trying to pr- provoke us to think. As followers of Christ, we don't really need a reason to betray him. As a matter of fact, we'll, if you keep reading, you'll see in a few days that even Peter, <laughs> right? Peter denies Christ. And I think he's saying here, look, you can be a follower. You can claim to be a follower. But you better be on guard. You better be alert because you have to, you have to watch out. Because at any moment, any one of his followers can fall away, can, can, can deny him or begin, begin faulting and denying him. Even to the point that, that Judas, Judas... Man, he turns him over to the chief priest. Some scholars would also say that, that maybe Judas was a, was a zealot. He was one of those that was so excited and so passionate about what, Je- what Jesus was doing that he got frustrated with Jesus. And he was trying to make Jesus act. He was trying to turn him over to say, man, I will kick this kingdom into full throttle when I turn him over and then Jesus unleashes all the power and fury. And you know what? It blew right up in his face because Jesus submitted, right? And he said, it's not my will, but it's the Father's will. I didn't come here to fight a fight with you. I came here to fight a fight with our enemy. And he wins, right? So some say maybe, maybe Judas did that, but, but still, the interesting thing here is that Mark doesn't give a reason. So it kind of provokes us to ask, man, am I, am I tempted to be like Judas? When Jesus doesn't ask, or when Jesus, when Jesus doesn't act the way that I think he should be, am I going to betray him? So think about it. There's three responses here. You can be like the religious leaders and deny him. You can be like this woman who shows extravagant devotion. Or you can be like Judas, who responds in the way of, I've tasted just enough, and I've had enough. I'm going to go find my own way. I want to ask you today, what's your response to this person Jesus what is your response to him do you deny him do you not want to give him control are you willing to devote yourself to him or are you are you willing to betray him think about it you know God calls us to be fully committed he calls us to be fully devoted followers of Christ actually and you know there's several different references to that in scripture you can look all the way back to maybe Isaiah chapter 1, remember, where, where God is writing and, and, he, and He's talking to these folks and He's saying, look, I, I've, I've seen and I've smelled and I've heard all of, your, all of your sacrifices, but you know what? I don't really want the blood of animals. I want your heart. I want you. That's what I want. I want you to love me and to follow me and I want to be in a relationship with you. And here... 
That's what we see. That's what we see. Our response should be, Lord, how can I be extravagantly devoted to you? How can I follow you? How can I trust you? How can I submit to what you have called me to do and called me to be? Hey, think with me. What could happen? What could happen at Faith Fellowship? What could happen if all of you together said, God, we are fully committed. We are fully devoted to you. No matter the cost, no matter the temptation, no matter the struggle, no matter the circumstance, God, we are yours. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we come to you today so thankful that you love us unconditionally. Father, that you care for us. Father, that you have called us. Father, we are not here this morning by mistake. Father, you have sovereignly worked to have us here today together, worshiping together, studying your word together. And Father, we come together this morning and rejoice in how you love us. So Father, as we have gathered together this morning, would you help us to see how can we, how can we be devoted to you? How can we show that, that we are yours, Father? Father, what are you calling us to do? What are you calling us to be? Who are you calling us to go reach? Father, help us. Help us to be followers of you. Father, as we are in this season of the of, of, of the Easter season coming up, we, we think about some of this uh, passion narrative and we think, Father, we think of how grateful we are. Really, just how grateful we are that a man, that a man died for us, Father. That He gave His life for us so that we could have a relationship with You. Father, today would You help us to constantly have on our mind this man, Jesus, who was God in the flesh and who gave Himself for us. Father, we thank You so much for how You love us, for how You have loved us. You know, the crazy thing is that in that text, with all three of those groups of people, Jesus died for them all and offered, offered forgiveness to them all. It was just that some failed to take it. Father, would you, would you help us to learn from their mistake? Would you help us to be like this woman who gave, who gave sacrificially for you, to honor you, to glorify you, and would you help us to trust and to follow you as we move forward? Thank you for your love. Thank you for your grace. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.